The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A very good morning to you. You're watching Scorebox with Karen Cho, Jeff Cutmore and myself, Steve Sedgwick. And these are your headlines. Amazon prospers from pandemic lockdowns as sales surge 44%, crushing earnings expectations with the e-commerce titan guiding strong momentum ahead. But it's bad news for Twitter. Down double digits in extended trade on a user miss and weak guidance, even as the revenue rises. And the U.S. economy roars back, notching 6.4% growth in the first quarter as vaccinations and government spending help get the country back towards pre-pandemic levels. Fresh data paints a divergent picture of China's manufacturing rebound, with official state numbers weighed down by supply disruptions, while private sector activity rises at its fastest pace in four months. And Chinese tech stocks slump as regulators crack down on so-called risky lending and payments with Beijing looking to counter the power of its homegrown tech sector. It's been a fantastic week to talk about the banks from uh, what we saw about Credit Suisse and Deutsche Bank, which, uh, well, Deutsche Bank for them, not the ball out of the park. Very mixed performance at the British banks this week, Lloyds and NatWest as well. Year to date, BNP Paribas, the shares have absolutely gone gangbusters to the upside. They are 25% higher. Um, and I just want a, a bit of a caveat here. When Karen and I and Jeff every day pour into these numbers, we are no accountants, but we do a lot of what accountants do on a regular basis, which is pouring through the numbers. The difference between us and accountants is we're interested in the interesting bits rather than the dull bits. For all my accountant friends out there, sorry about that. Anyway, so I think there's one thing here which I think is absolutely fascinating. Uh, and I'll, I'll go through some of the numbers. First quarter revenue up 8.6% uh, from a year ago, 11.83 billion euros. Okay, fair enough. Net income attributable to equity uh, holders, 1.77 billion euros. That is up 38% from a year ago. So, so far, so good. Cost of risk down 37.2% to 896 million. Again, tick in the right direction. Common tier one ratio at 12.8, I'd suggest lowish end of where we want to see it in Europe as well. But again, nothing to scare the horses. Uh, revenue, corporate investment banking up 24.3%. And then we get to this. Again, it's not going to perhaps change the direction of travel on the overall numbers, which look very positive to me today. But FIC trading, fixed income, uh, commodities down 15.7% in the first quarter. Now, we didn't see uh, a big archegos or anything going on there, did we? So trading down 15.7%. comparables, I, I dare say, now that they're running into. I mean, I just found some numbers from July last year where they had a bounce of 150-odd percent in those thick revenues. So uh, just pull it uh, back a little bit further on the window and no doubt we're just bumping up against some very strong levels from the prior wow. year. I mean, yeah, but we didn't get that from the US banks. We didn't even get that from Credit Suisse, which if it hadn't been for their minor hiccup of losing over $4 billion, uh, euros on, on, on a couple of minor incidents, which we might have discussed once or twice. Fix should have been good. Fixed income trade. I mean, look at look at what the, the oscillation we've seen in the 10-year as well in the States and bumping up against 170 and back down again and commodities trading as well. Uh, 
that's a big loss for that area. Yeah, potentially. I mean, that said, I don't know if we've had as much currency fluctuations as we've had in the last 12 months prior. Uh, so it's settled down a little bit. I mean, we've only just started to see some movement in the euro at this point now. Yeah, look, so, I, so I wonder whether I, it's... I may you know, well be barking up the wrong tree on this one because I think actually... Um, Really good figures, by and large, it, it seems. Um, um, we've got a bit of tape. Do we, should, we get, should we get to the tape? Oh, actually, I'll no, tell you what. We've got um, something else is going on at the moment because uh, Credit Suisse has been hitting the wires. And thankfully, while you, while you, you and I have been chatting, and Credit Suisse hits. Mr G Cutmore <laughs> has been looking at Credit Suisse. What are they? I haven't even seen this flash. So this is brand new news, Jeffrey. Yeah, very interesting. And of course, it relates to the ongoing um, slow motion car wreck that has been Archegos. The breaking news this hour, Credit Suisse, the head of risk, Andreas Gotchling, is to step down from the board. So Credit Suisse continues to move the deck chairs on the deck of the Titanic. If that's not too mean to say at this point around the Archegos story specifically. So the message is Gotchling will not stand for re-election uh, to the board at the AGM on Friday. And the head of risk uh, is to step down from the board. Um, I guess this is all part of um, uh, Thomas Gottstein's ongoing uh, efforts now to de-risk the business and figure out exactly where the uh, weakness lies in the current structure. And um, obviously, we've referenced it a few times, but going back to that interview that I did with him as they announced their quarterly numbers, he was clearly seething about the fact that he's been put in the spot to have to explain another problem at the bank. And um, as we look at the announcement this morning, uh, I suspect it will not be the last we hear about changes at Credit Suisse as they reorganise themselves to uh, try and prevent uh, yet another scandal, Steve. Yeah, I mean, um, to be fair, this story was doing the rounds. I don't know how the FT got their story, but they were all over it as well. And their quote from yesterday is that Gotchling's opponents include US investment manager Harris Associates and Norway's oil uh, fund, both top 10 shareholders. The 53-year-old German has served as the risk committee uh, chair since 2018, earning $1 million annually as his fee. Uh, David Hero, according to the FT, uh, which owns 10.25% of the FT, uh, told the FT this week, it is a director's job to represent shareholders and to watch over management. Not only should Mr. Glotchling be voted down, but I'm actually surprised in light of current events that he hasn't already Resigns. We'll come back to this story a little bit later on. So BNP Paribas has posted, by and large, uh, a very strong set of numbers. 38% rise in first quarter net income as the lender benefited from the gradual resumption of economic activity. The French bank saw revenue rise almost 9% over the period. Well, Charlotte spoke with the BNP CFO Lars Machinel and they discussed what drove growth across the quarter. Look at international financial services. Many parts, Bank West, uh, insurance, asset management, doing very strong. And even the ones that are linked to consumer and consumption, like personal finance, they are ramping up. And then finally, if you look at CIB, so CIB continues its diversified approach, very high levels, up again uh, by almost 25%. So all of the divisions are doing well. And we're basically going to continue also our three levers into 21. We're going to continue to bank on digitalization, we're going to continue the synergies on cost and revenues between our entities, and we're going to continue to capitalize on the market shares that we have been consolidating. So that's a bit in a nutshell. 
It's a quarter where basically all lights are green. Uh, Karen's just found the number, 34.5% higher, those thick figures a year ago. And I was talking about the comparisons now. So may maybe, as you quite rightly say, that is a large part of it. But look, Charlotte has been speaking to Lars Machinel. We've got a taster there as well. Charlotte, why don't you tell us what the broader um, highlights or and lowlights of the figures are? Well, this is a big bit across the board for BNP on this Q1 numbers. Uh, as you mentioned, there was this thick number that was down 15% in terms of revenue, but they had mentioned that there would be a normalization of activity given the bounce, the bumper year that 2020 was for this side of the activity. So there was no surprise there. Uh, we saw equities trading back in the green. You remember that in Q1 last year, French banks that were a bit uh, specialists in the sort of like structured products that were linked to derivatives uh, being hard hit last year as, as corporate. Uh, cancel their dividend payments and so they were negative they put uh, they, they posted some losses in the first quarter last year but they were back in the green with revenue up uh, and at 697 million they mentioned the extreme shock that was the q1 last year on this front but look ct1 ratio standing at 12.8 percent again very strong they've returned on tangible equity so that 10.6 percent being over that 10 uh, percent uh, number which was their target before the covid crisis they were below that uh, last year and they went back above that number again so here again uh, cost of risk very low it gone up between q3 it was down and it was up again in q4 they saw risk rise again with cases rising again and more risk that they could they saw in the economy but there they see it down again at 42 basis points so that's down 44 percent compared to last uh, quarter so they mentioned this positive economy uh, economic recovery coming through uh, they didn't give a very specific guidance and they just they just stuck to what they had in february when mentioned in February that they would just see an increase in revenue this year and lower cost of risks. And so when I discussed with the CFO yesterday, I asked him how he saw and would he revise this guidance uh, given the strong Q1. And I said, look, if things continue like in Q1, results this year might be a tad better than they expected. So they're across the board, a strong set of results for BNP, guys. Shares in Amazon rose in extended trade after the e-commerce giant posted better-than-expected first-quarter earnings thanks to a pandemic-driven surge in demand for online shopping and video streaming. Sales came in at more than $100 billion for the second straight quarter, boosted in part by solid growth at its key web services unit. The company said it expects revenue growth to continue despite the easing of lockdown restrictions and moved its annual Prime Day event forward by one month to June. Meantime, Twitter shares dropped an extended trade after the social media giant reported smaller-than-expected first-quarter growth in daily active users. The company also warned a pandemic-driven surge in users would slow in the coming quarters, with costs expected to rise by the end of the year. Twitter CFO Ned Sigel will be speaking with our U.S. colleagues later today at 2.35 p.m. CET. Joining us now is Yatsahi, who is retail consulting industry lead at Fujitsu UK. Nice to have you back with us. Uh, can I ask you about the Amazon numbers? Because it was a, certainly a stunning set of results that were produced. A number of analysts think there's more to come with stimulus checks and uh, this permanent shift towards online shopping. But I wonder what that means when we've got more and more players digitizing and there are more and more competitors out there. What does that mean for Amazon's market share? Mm, absolutely. Uh, good to be here. Um, 
Yes, you're absolutely right. Back in 2018, Amazon had about 50% of the e-commerce market in the US. It now has about a third of the market because the big players of all making their e-commerce plays, of course, people like Walmart and Kroger, but also things like Shopify have allowed smaller merchants to go online because, you know, they, they, it was often the only way they could trade. And, uh, and Shopify saw almost a 100% increase in their uh, the gross merchandise value across their platform. Uh, and it's a lot, you know, it allows a retailer to really be much more in control of their store without all, all the competition that you might be facing on the Amazon marketplace. So I think there are headwinds on that e-commerce side of things because of those big players and also these new platforms that are allowing even smaller brands to, to go and engage customers online. And of course, people like Nike and L'Oreal want to go direct to consumer. They want to keep that intimacy with the customer. So Nike left the Amazon platform a couple of years ago. They now have about 40% of their sales direct to consumer. And about 30% of that is driven by e-com. So, you know, you're absolutely right to say market share is something that they should have an eye on. Jet, I think it was interesting too that they moved their big promotional day and there's been huge headlines, of course, around Prime Day shopping and extravaganza as we see these huge amounts of money that are spent on the platform every year. They've moved that date from, uh, from July to June. What's the significance of that? Because we know promotional windows are quite key. Yeah, I, I, it's interesting. I mean, they, they place it as an experiment, right? And this is something Amazon do. They experiment and they place some big bets. And you can see with the Olympics that were meant to happen, they were worried about that sort of getting in the way. Uh, and this is going to be another experiment. We don't really know what's going to happen, right? We're living in a world of uncertainty at the moment. But what I do imagine, a thought in the back of their minds could have been that actually as vaccinations roll out, as people head back out into those stores, Maybe Prime Day later in the year, when you know a lot of those stores could be open and competing, um, would make less money than having Prime Day a bit earlier on, while the vaccine rollouts are still going on and consumer confidence in going to stores still hasn't built to pre-pandemic levels. Um, Jack, it's very interesting. I have the delight when I drive in every morning of driving through Croydon of all places. And there's a lot of uh, retail and industrial going on in the, the aforementioned beautiful uh, southern town uh, of Croydon. Uh, and, but I drive past and I see the, the, the debris that was uh, once a John Lewis, which is closed now. But I see an Adidas store opening up. Now, with that in mind, you mentioned Nike as well. Bricks and mortar. How serious are the big players about bricks and mortar's future, including... Amazon, because there are all kinds of experiments going on from Amazon on bricks and mortar. Yeah, absolutely. Look, um, Amazon opened in London, in East London, their hair salon uh, just the other week. So they are absolutely looking at experiential retail because what they're kind of realising is, that, you know, as a utility, they're brilliant, right? But being something that's socially significant, you know, like Adidas is, like Nike is, that's something that's able to sell products at higher margins, you require more experience to kind of deliver that. You require a more totality of the brand. That's why Apple has Apple stores, right? So there is still going to be bricks and mortar around. I think as, as retailers have to rationalize their cost base, there will undoubtedly be less of it. It will be used differently, more experiential, also more as a fulfillment center, yeah, as one of the things that's really going to drive a lot of change in retail is working from home, right? We're seeing that almost 70% of people are sort of saying, you know, they've got new habits now that are going to last 
post-pandemic, uh, working for home for about a quarter of them. So you can see that actually local high streets, etc., do have an opportunity, and those bricks and mortar places do have an opportunity when this change happens to go and do something. And my own experience with retailers at the moment is telling me that they're ready to do that. Right? Uh, the pandemic has kind of forced the C-suite to stop kicking the can down the road and actually face up to the fact that they've got to deliver new value in new ways, look at their cost bases, bring in more technology, more supply chain and work with partners more. Um, and so we're seeing a lot of activity and they've had a lot of confidence as well because they've had to change so quickly recently in a way that they never actually believed they could before. So there's a lot of, lot of opportunity sitting right in front of those bricks and mortar retailers at the moment. Uh, Jack, you not only do retail, you do hospitality. So let's uh, tap that hat uh, that you wear as well here. I'm very interested uh, as to your analysis of the tra- change in trends with the partial reopen we've seen of hospitality here in the UK. Very interesting how some companies and um, uh, restaurants have managed this by introducing um, codes that you have to scan as you order so that you can have proper table service without them having to uh, bulk up on staff. How well do you think the hospitality sector is doing as it rebounds here and how is technology helping? Well, I think uh, it's doing pretty well. It's it's actually, I don't know if you try to book a restaurant or, or outside pub table at the moment, it's pretty difficult even during the week. Um, so I think hospitality will rebound. I think there's a lot of pent up demand. People also have a lot of savings. When you're working from home and you don't have to do that commute for a couple of hours a day, you're much more likely to head out in the evening as well and reconnect with local friends. So I think hospitality will do well. The places in hospitality that will suffer will be, you know, those after work places, the on the way to work places, the coffee shops there. You know, those those places, you know, I'm, I'm a bit more uh, cautious about, but I think the rest of it will be great. And I think technology is a massive part to play because what we've seen is that actually wage inflation is hitting hospitality. Uh, people, you know, to get people to work in those, uh, those sites now is costing more and more. So the technology is there to keep customers safe, to give them a better experience, but also drive down that cost base, which is absolutely something all hospitality businesses need to keep an eye on. Excellent speaking to you. Thanks for getting up early for us, Jack, and uh, we'll speak to you again soon. Jack Sahi is a retail consulting industry leader for Jitsu UK. Right, a deal we've been talking about already this week. Uh, If I said to you, uh, Nature's Bounty, Solgar, Pure Protein, Osteo Bioflex, Puritan's Pride. Karen knows who they're all from. They're bounty company. Bountiful, aren't they? Bountiful. Bountiful. Not talking about your diet, your new <laughs> Well, I don't diet. know. A few vitamins. Um, right, as we discussed, Nestle is going to acquire Bountiful. They're buying it pretty much, or, or the brands, I should say, buying the brands, the key brands of KKR, uh, 5.75 billion US dollars. Um, yeah, all the usual flim-flam about it being the number one pure play leader, highly attractive, yada, yada. Uh, transaction spec to close in the second half of 2021. Transaction, as I say, valued at $5.75 billion on a cash-free, debt-free basis, representing a multiple of 3.1 times net sales. 
16.8 times EBITDA as of March 31st, 2021. You know, we heard this message a number of years back from the likes of uh, Royal DSM. They were talking about the growth in vitamins, how you were seeing very strong uh, pivot in that uh, part of the business. And uh, Nestle obviously now seeking to, to jump into this. And one would imagine the margins would be decent too as we're talking about vitamins. Do you do your vitamins in the morning or the evening? Across the day, I have so many to take. Any, any particular favourite for our viewers? Astralagus. Oh, really? Never heard mm. of it. This oh, you a, told me about this before, sorry. A Chinese immune system one. Ah. I've found it uh, has been incredibly useful in recent years. Well, a bit of D. A bit of D. Oh, of course. Uh, a bit of D, a bit of B12. C, everybody has those. Yeah. Oh, oh, okay. <laughs> right. I'm, I'm so last year. <laughs> Astral what? How do you say it? Astralagus. Wait, you can't spell it. Um, I absolutely can't spell it. <laughs> okay. Uh, Mr. Cutmore. Yeah, it sounds like one of those heroes from classical Greece, doesn't it, turning up with Jason and the Argonauts. Uh, let's talk a little bit then about this China tech story, because I think fascinating how China is just getting on with reframing the competitive challenge from its tech sector. Shares in some of the uh, tech titans in China under pressure after regulators in Beijing ordered 13 fintech companies to fix prominent problems on their platforms. Authorities demanded the businesses, which include Tencent, ByteDance and Baidu, raise capital and bring payment platforms in line with national rules. Now, Ant Group was not among the targeted companies, despite being ordered to restructure earlier this month. Right. OK, coming up on the show after the break, in fact, Eric Rondelat's going to join us. Signify Post, first quarter net profit in line with expectations. We're going to break down the numbers with the aforementioned CEO after a short break. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com. Signify has posted a 3.2% rise in revenues to 1.6 billion euros, whilst net profit met expectations at 60 million euros. Our old friend Eric Rondelat joins us now, CEO of Signify. Eric, lovely to see you. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. Look, I'll let you into a little secret. I bought some LED lights this week. I can't remember who the um, the, the manufacturer was. I apologise for that now. But I've, I've, I've done something for the industry. The problem was for you, and the good thing for me is I thought they were jolly cheap. Are you holding margins? Well, good morning. Uh, good morning, Karen. Good morning, Jeff. And good morning, Steve. Well, um, you know, I hope I would have convinced you by uh, by this time to uh, to buy the right brand. But anyway, you know, uh, helping the industry is a good thing. You know, you, you know for us, Q1 is uh, the demonstration that um, a rigorous execution of the strategy is delivering structural improvements. As you have said, we are growing. But what is more important is that the growth is coming from our new growth platforms and also connected lighting. Uh, we now uh, have increased our connected light points from 77 million the previous quarter to 83 million to date. 82% is the turnover in Q1, which is coming from LED-based activities. So you may remember, Steve, when we met you and I, you know, at the time of the IPO, uh, this number was only 45%. 
And that growth is creating a strong operational uh, leverage as we are increasing our profitability by 290 basis points. And that profitability is the main reason for uh, the good performance in cash flow around 168 million, which is uh, 10% of sales. You know, so at the end of the day, a Q1, which is which is convincing, you know, when we execute on our strategic objectives, uh, we strengthen our financial profile. Yeah, it was nearly five years ago, wasn't it? Late May 2016. Goodness me, Eric, I remember it very, very well. It was a very interesting day as well. Look, look, great guns. The strategy's going well. But do you mind if I just go back again and ask you about the margins? Uh, you gave me a great answer, but I don't know if you answered my question. Well, as, as you see, the margin and, and the operating margin has improved um, by 290 basis points. So this is the consequence of what we have done last year. So let me remind you that last year we declined by uh, a bit less than 13%, but we still improved the operating margin um, by 40 basis points. Uh, so we have... Uh, we had a carryover effect of that good performance uh, in Q1, and we're holding on margin. So it's true that there is price and component increases, uh, but we have been able to hold on the margins. Eric, I was just looking into the statement, and there was a comment about uh, the upswing in demand around the professional portfolio that you anticipate as uh, the vaccination programs roll out, and no doubt more people are brought back to, to workplaces. Just give us a sense of how you're thinking through that demand story. Uh, when you look at what has happened lately, uh, the demand has been mostly driven by our consumer-based businesses. You know, because of the lockdowns, our professional part of the business was much softer. But we expect to rebound in the second half of the year uh, when we see that uh, the vaccination rollout, uh, when we see that the economy is going back to a normal way of operating with less lockdowns, will really help uh, our professional business. And when it comes to supply chain shortages that you flagged up and you point out this is uh, down to component shortages, is that the, the chip shortage we've been talking about and just how strongly is that impacting the production line at this point? Yeah, not only, Karen. I think it has been a very difficult quarter when it comes to supply chain uh, at large. You know, we had uh, three uh, phenomena. One is the component shortage. So it's not only electronic components, you know, semiconductor, but also passive components. We've experienced shortages in resins, in plastics, in uh, in metals. So it's quite pretty much, you know, along the whole the whole supply chain. We also experienced the shortage of containers. Uh, you know, from the Chinese harbors, but also the American harbors. We also had an unfortunate situation in the U.S., you know, with the, with the weather conditions that paralyzed the supply chain for about a week and a half. So at the end of the day, if we look at Q1, we had to push about 50 million of sales, which is three percentage points of growth uh, to Q2 because for all these reasons, we were not uh, capable to deliver. So when we take a bit of distance and we look at the supply chain uh, condition, we believe that Q2 will still be pretty much disrupted. Uh, there should be a correction in the second half and we should be through uh, at the beginning of 2022. But it's a very, very difficult period when it comes to uh, being able to deliver our customers, which is our, our prime objective. And Eric, uh, good morning to you. Are you finding that in terms of the demand pickup, it's following the pattern of the trend in the pandemic? Ultimately, it is regions that are doing better that are picking up the orders. Yeah, that, that's pretty clear. You know, when we compare um, Q1 21 to Q1 20, it's, it's rather obvious. You know, China was very affected 
you know, in Q1 20. Uh, China has been recovering pretty well uh, as far as the pandemic is concerned, and we see a clear rebound in China in Q1 21. As far as Europe is concerned, we were a little bit affected, you know, especially at the back end of, of, of 20. We've seen a partial recovery and pretty much on the consumer part of the business and the northern part of Europe. And when you go to the US, US was not really uh, getting into in the crisis in Q1 and 20, and they are in the crisis at this point in time, and we see a market which is much softer. So there's a direct link between uh, the pandemic and the traction that we see on the end markets, specifically on the professional part of the business. Eric, I think that call is, is is very important. So you better get to that one. We've got to leave it anyway because we've got some French GDP. Lovely to see you, sir. Always a pleasure. Thank you very much indeed. And I look forward to the time we can see each other in the flesh. So uh, Eric Rondelat is the CEO of yeah, thank Signify. You. Thank you very much indeed for that, sir. So we had some pretty strong GDP out of the US yesterday. What was it 6.4% figure as well? Although after contracting 1.4% in the fourth quarter, what is happening with French GDP? Well, the good news is it has beaten expectations. The forecast was for up 0.1 of a percent. It has come in quarter on quarter up 0.4 of 1%. Household spending up 0.3 of a percent quarter on quarter. Business investment looks relatively robust, although, of course, everything is comparable to what was an extraordinary year the previous year, up 2.3%. I'll give you one more number. First quarter, domestic demand, ex-inventories contributed plus 0.9% to GDP, but foreign trade down 0.4%. Inventories were flat as a pancake as well. Uh, I'll just go through the numbers of which. Government spending, it looks like government uh, having a large part of their up 3.1%. So um, that's a very interesting set of numbers, but relatively robust. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.